Good morning, and uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, my name is uh, Julian Sanchez. I'm a senior fellow here, uh, and I'm grateful to everyone who has uh, come out bright and early uh, to the, uh, Cato the uh, Hayek Auditorium here at Cato uh, for our 2019 uh, surveillance conference. Uh, we've been doing this for some uh, five years now. Uh, when we launched this in the aftermath of uh, disclosures, disclosures about uh, uh, bulk uh, NSA collection uh, by former NSA contractor Edward Snowden. The uh, NSA itself was a fairly obscure agency, um, unfamiliar to most Americans. Uh, and as we kick off our 2019 conference, um, we find that now even intelligence oversight is itself uh, very much in public headlines. We have uh, an impeachment proceeding kicked off in significant part by a uh, report from the, <clears throat> from the uh, uh, Intelligence Community's Inspector General. We have uh, forthcoming next week a uh, breathlessly awaited report on allegations of misuse of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act uh, during the 2016 presidential campaign. Uh, we have proceedings uh, aired uh, in, in connection with impeachment from the House Intelligence Committees. Um, so even intelligence overseers now are at the center, in a sense, of our political discourse in the way uh, that the intelligence agencies themselves began to be uh, earlier, uh, uh, earlier in this cycle um, in a way that was really unprecedented since the 1970s. Um, so we have a special focus this year on not just the intelligence agents themselves, but also the mechanisms in place to oversee them. Um, one of the kind of classic problems of intelligence and of surveillance in a free society is how to balance the need for uh, operations that are inherently secret. Uh, surveillance that is done publicly, um, in a sense, is definitionally not effective surveillance. So how do you balance the need to conduct uh, certain kinds of operations, information gathering in secret, while at the same time uh, rendering those with that power accountable uh, to the public, uh, to democratic mechanisms, uh, given the unfortunate history around the world, but certainly in our country as well, of secret surveillance power being abused for political purposes. Um, so we have a program today um, that includes a discussion with one of the most important uh, bodies doing that oversight, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board this afternoon. Um, we'll have discussions on uh, the renewed war on, uh, on strong encryption, uh, one of the mechanisms that acts to check large-scale uh, collection. We're going to examine later this morning uh, some of what we've learned about uh, compliance issues or misuses of large-scale surveillance authorities under uh, authorities such as FISA 702 and 215, and how the intelligence community is seeking to address those, and how effective those corrective mechanisms have been. Um, but to start off, I think appropriately, uh, we're going to begin with an overview of the intelligence oversight apparatus. What are all the different entities that are working to keep this secret use of power in check? Do they operate effectively? And how can they be improved? Uh, there are a few people better, I think, suited to lead that discussion than our moderator, 
uh, Liz Hempowitz, who is the uh, policy director at the Project on Government Oversight, which does excellent work uh, working to increase uh, transparency and accountability across government, but in particular of the intelligence agencies. I will pass it off to the very able Liz Hempowitz to introduce our first excellent panel. Thank you so much. Um, so I'm going to just do some brief introductions. Our panelists have um, long storied careers, uh, and so um, their full bios are on the conference website, and I encourage you to check them out. Uh, Dr. Genevieve Lester is the DeSirio Chair of Strategic and Theater Intelligence and an Associate Professor at the U.S. Army War College. She recently published her first book, When Should State Secrets Stay Secret? Accountability, Democratic Governance, and Intelligence with the Cambridge University Press. Daniel Schumann leads Demand Progress and Demand Progress Education Fund's efforts on issues that concern government transparency, accountability and reform, civil liberties, national security, and promoting an open internet. He's a nationally recognized expert on federal transparency, accountability, and capacity. Uh, Dr. David Barrett is a professor of political science at Villanova University and author of, among other titles, The CIA and Congress, The Untold Story from Truman to Kennedy. The Washington Post called it a triumph of research, and one Amazon reviewer called it literally one of the coolest books out there. <laughs> and Professor Margot Schlanger is the Wade H. and Dolores M. McCree Collegiate Professor of Law, is a leading authority on civil rights issues and civil and criminal detention. So I think to kick us off, um, before we get into kind of what are some of the problems with, with oversight of the intelligence community, um, we should understand kind of what are, those what are the mechanisms that exist to conduct oversight over this relatively secret um, governmental apparatus. Uh, so Professor, Professor Schlanger, uh, I hope you don't mind that I'm going to come to you first. Um, you've looked extensively at the mechanisms for internal oversight at the National Security Agency or the NSA. Uh, can you talk a little bit about those and the benefits and limits to internal oversight offices? And then we're going to go into some of the external oversight offices that exist. Great. So um, I, I come at this uh, conversation from the role of the former, as, as the former head of the Civil Rights Office at the Department of Homeland Security, where I played a role as an internal overseer for the tiny sliver of the IC that um, is located at DHS. But I got interested in NSA as at kind of at the center of this. And so um, uh, if you think broadly about the internal offices that play some role in compliance with externally imposed norms and with what you might broadly speaking call internal oversight, it's a pretty big list. And I suspect that some of my fellow panelists will quarrel with inclusion of some of these offices on this list. But I'm just going to, I actually needed to make sure that I didn't skip any. I needed notes. So, um, <coughs> Uh, there is, at the NSA, a compliance office responsible for um, aspects of compliance with especially the, the strictures of the FISA court and also the 12333 rules. There's the Office of General Counsel, which functions in part as an oversight office, although in large part not. Um, in large part as an enabling office to enable its client to do what its client wants to do. But in some degree, that's also an oversight office. There's the NSA IG. Um, which is more independent, obviously. There's the Civil Liberties and Privacy Office at the NSA, which has both a policy role, a policy creation role to be at the table when policy is, is um, originated, um, a policy implementation role, and an, an oversight role. Um, there is um, 
at the Department of Justice. There's the, the National Security Division. Um, a, a quote that I like that says that this is not such a big oversight office comes from um, a former uh, a DOJ official who called the NSD the place the IC goes to get blessed. But um, so that makes it sound not very oversight-like. But um, other people disagree with that and say, yes, that actually functions as an oversight office. There's the intelligence oversight um, uh, function at the Department of Defense. There's the Intelligence Community IG's office. There's at ODNI, the Civil Liberties Protection Office, which particularly has a role in 702 um, compliance work. There's the ODNI, Office of General Counsel, the ODNI Mission Integration. This says integration. That's not right, is it? Mission. In I, mean, I think it is right. Mission integration. Um, uh, uh, function, which again has some compliance oversight sorts of um, functions. There's the President's Intelligence Advisory Board, Intelligence Oversight Board. There's the FISC itself, which isn't internal, so now I'm exiting from my role here, and the P Club, which other people will talk much more about. But then to do two, two more minutes, if that's about the right, right amount of time. The challenge of oversight, internal oversight offices, is simultaneously. Um, uh, the the offices, internal oversight offices are desired by the agencies they work for because they want the blessing of those offices. They want the external credibility that such blessing gets them. Um, <coughs> if they can create enough um, uh, authority or enough, uh, enough of a reputation that the blessing actually carries some reputational benefit, right? That's the thing that they want from them. They might also want the expertise, but they don't always want the expertise. What they mostly want is, is the blessing. But then the question is, well, what comes with that? So what comes with that has to be some kind of actually bringing into the agency the norm that the office is designed to further. So if it's a civil liberties office, there has to be some civil liberties credibility that comes with that. And so what those offices have to do, if they're going to be effective at all, is they have to maintain simultaneously their, their influence in the agency and their commitment to whatever that external norm is, which is a norm that um, uh, uh, academic work sometimes calls a precarious value, a value that's challenged in the agency and that's kind of continually under threat. And so this office, whatever it is, say the, um, say the Civil Liberties and Privacy Office, has to carry a, 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 a sustained commitment to civil liberties and privacy against what is a really very strong mission orientation that tends to run against that value. It has to do that simultaneously while maintaining influence in the agency. And that's the challenge. Um, and so how can it do that? Well, it has to maintain pretty strong affiliation both with the agency and simultaneously with external reference points outside the agency, <coughs> or else it's really hopeless. But if, if that needle can be threaded, and we'll have more time to talk about it, then what it can do is flag issues inside the office for more empowered entities that can actually you know, tell people what to do as opposed to just advise them. It can increase public access by writing reports, both reports that are publicly available and honestly reports that either get FOIA'd or leaked or 
disclosed in discovery, but generating um, internal paper that becomes external. Um, and it can build a relationship with external advocates that helps the agency actually respect the norms that are in question. So that's the basic idea. And if that sounds hopeless, my, pos my position on this is that it's not hopeless, but boy, it's very, very hard. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'd say um, internal oversight offices certainly serve a purpose, but they can't be the only they can't be the only check on, on what, especially in the intelligence community, could be really extreme abuses of, of their authorities. Um, can, can, can I just say, it's not yeah. only because they're not empowered enough to be the only check, but because if they're the only check, they will lose both influence and they'll lose that external orientation right. that they need to succeed. Right. So for both reasons, both they're, they're, they're under, under authorized, but also because they'll just lose whatever influence and um, and commitment they have if they're the only check. Yeah. Um, so putting aside questions of their effectiveness for now, and this is a question to the whole group, um, what are some of the major external oversight bodies um, that play a role in oversight of the intelligence community? Whoever wants to take it. Well, we could start briefly with, with Congress. There are two full committees on intelligence, and they have existed since roughly the mid to late 1970s. There's been a logic, a sort of constitutionally derived logic of congressional oversight of executive branch agencies that goes back to the presidency of George Washington in terms of congressional oversight of intelligence. And my specialty has been especially CIA. It was very informally carried out from the 40s through the mid 70s, but not very adequately, certainly not systematically. And so now we have the, the House and the Senate Intelligence Committees, which one hopes, uh, I mean, the thing is about intelligence agencies, surveillance policy and all this, so much of it is carried out and must be carried out in secret. So on behalf of the American public, we have democratically elected officials to try to monitor these secret activities. So we, there's a president, but there's also Congress and especially these, these two committees to uh, preside over legislation to keep them functioning, to, uh, to, to create boundaries, uh, to investigate, to see that they are performing with both competence but also uh, uh, legality. So, Can I pick up on that a little bit? Yeah. Um, I would argue even further that the Congressional Oversight Committees are really intended to rebalance an information asymmetry when it comes to the relationship with the external world and intelligence agencies. Because you're looking at this, you're looking at the executive branch ownership of intelligence information. The Congressional Committees balance that by asking questions, uh, bringing in people, um, requiring reports, testimony, that type of thing. And I think one thing that David touched upon is that they, these, both of these committees were stood up in the 1970s in the wake of scandal. So the Church and Pike committees investigated uh, what could, were alleged intelligence abuses, and these committees were stood up as a way, a bipartisan way of, of putting boundaries on intelligence activities. But I think that the, the scandalous birth, or the birth from scandal, that these committees, these select committees show is, is an interesting political piece to the whole picture, that these, these, the intelligence oversight was done rather sporadically up to that point. And then the, the body politic decided we needed something a little bit more formal to be put in place to rebalance, to rebalance this relationship. So uh, I, I think that's important. Uh, when you think about congressional oversight, it's not just House and Senate Intelligence Committee. 
So, for example, FISA is overseen in part by the Judiciary Committee. The appropriators play a significant role here as well. Um, the, the story for the House and Senate Intelligence Committees is sort of a slide from being overseers to being, um, uh, you know, the supporters or, or almost uh, the boosters for the intelligence community. So, like the the role that they played has changed from you know the post per, uh, Church and Pike Committee role of like being the overseers to really being no, no, we're going to actually be your biggest advocates and advocate for things that you don't necessarily want. There's other players as well. There's the Government Accountability Office. Uh, which uh, has a number of folks with clearances who are, are intended to aid Congress okay. in getting questions answered. Uh, the intelligence community tries to work around GAO and undermine their ability to engage in oversight, but they do have that, that role. Uh, there's also the inspectors general that exists, and, and Pogo can talk about this better than I can. Um, there's dissidents, there's whistleblowers, there's the press. Um, there are a number of players that um, uh, help educate and bring in particularly Congress, because Congress is the, the major point of leverage where you can actually force uh, folks to answer questions. And you see a lot of games that get played. Um, there's 1.1 million people with top secret or higher clearances. There's 40-something people on the House Intelligence Committee. The number of senators who have access to a staffer with a TSSCI clearance is, I think, 37. Uh, so most senators don't even have someone who can get their basic questions answered. So when you're talking about oversight, you know, it's to what degree, to what extent, of whom, with what help. And I think when you look at it in the congressional context, the political games that played, and the so just to go back to Hipsy, just for one final whack at them, because it's, it's fun for me. <laughs> uh, it's a select committee, which means that the members of Hipsy are chosen by the speaker and the minority leader. It is not a standing committee like judiciary. Uh, its members are supposed to reflect the composition of the chamber uh, over at HIPSI, but that doesn't actually happen in effect. Oftentimes they don't have representatives, so they're required to have someone from judiciary. Uh, they've had periods of time where they haven't had anyone from that committee. So, you know, the, there's the overseers, but to the extent to which they oversee is an is a interesting uh, and open question. Okay. So. I was, um, if nobody brought up, if nobody else brought up the role of whistleblowers in uh, overseeing the intelligence community, I definitely was gonna. So I'm glad, I'm glad you beat me to it, um, Daniel. Um, Professor, or Dr. Barrett, uh, your book, The CIA and Congress, The Untold Story, uh, examines the years between the creation of the CIA and the Bay of Pigs invasion. Um, what, Ron, what one reviewer referred to as the dark ages of congressional oversight. Do you think congressional oversight of the intelligence community has changed much since those dark ages? Oh, I think it's, there's some common features across all those many decades, but it's, changed very substantially because in, in the old days, in those first three decades or so, there were tiny and very secretive subcommittees of, of the armed services committees and appropriations committees. And they, so four of them, and sometimes some of them perform somewhat effectively, but there was, there was no full-time staff devoted to this task. So you had members of armed services and appropriations committees and these subcommittees who would assign some of their staffers to spend some of their time in assisting them and monitoring the, especially CIA. Um, so it was, it was, it was, that old system wasn't as awful as the history books say. That's one of the, the conclusions of my book. But it was never anything like comprehensive or systematic. And so now we have these big committees. Maybe they're too big, these intelligence 
committees, plus, uh, as has been pointed out, uh, other, other committees engaging in oversight. But we have a, a lot of members of Congress who at least can examine what the intelligence agencies are doing. My sense of it, when I've spoken to uh, former legislative liaisons for CAA, and I've spoken to a couple of them, I have to say, for what it's worth, they were very unimpressed in their years where they did that work with the sort of attention and questioning uh, that CIA received from uh, members of Congress. You would think in the modern era with these big committees, big staffs, all this, you know, all the laws that we have, that the quality of oversight would be better than it is. But one consistency across the long haul from 1947 through today, if I can believe these former legislative liaison, is that there's, strangely, not enough attention given by most members of relevant committees to intelligence oversight. Mm -hmm. And why do, you, why do you think that is? And that's a question for the group, I think, um, especially in, in our advocacy on um, whistleblower protections and increased transparency in the intelligence community. Um, you know, it's been my experience that we go, we go up to the Hill and meet with staffers and they, you know, they wave around uh, national security and that's the end of the conversation. And so that's been my experience, but, but I would love to pose the question to you guys. Why do you think that is that, that maybe con members of Congress and their staffs aren't asking the, the tough questions that they should be asking? So can I take a, so it, maybe I misspoke before. So the House Intelligence Committee has 40-something staff. So the number of, of personnel they have is tiny. Uh, when you look at Congress as a whole, they're just putting it in context compared to the, the 1970s. There's a thousand fewer House Committee staff now than there was uh, in like 1983. There's a 20-something percent decrease in Senate Committee staff. GAO is down by 2,000 staff. Uh, CRS, where I used to work, is down by 20% as well. So we actually see a diminishment in the number of, of staff who are able to do this. And, and, the, and the obligations for members has, has gone up significantly. So I, I think this follows true with what you were saying, which is that uh, congressional focus and attention is very diffuse. Um, it, it's, uh, you didn't say this, but I'll say this, which is it's, it's often reactive. Um, that uh, it's reactive to the news, it's reactive to leaks, it's reactive to the administration, it's not proactive. And when you have a big thing happening, so right now impeachment is going on, that is being managed by the House Intelligence Committee, well, how much are they able to oversee the intelligence community, which is what their primary responsibility is, when they've been spending all this time focused on this other thing? And this isn't a critique. Um, we can get into that later if folks want, but it's, it's more, you know, they, they just don't have the resources to, the, to do the work that they need to know. And a lot of their staff come over from the intelligence community. So there's also um, perspective issues uh, in terms of you want to make sure that the people that you're hiring to help do this work and the people that leadership are selecting to run the committee are those who are motivated to go in and find out what's going on and to talk about it. Uh, but they feel caught that the intelligence community won't answer their questions if they don't give them a lot of accommodation. And the consequence of that is that you, know, you take things out of the public space, um, or you don't ask some of the tough questions. You don't have the people who can ask the tough questions. And a lot of the oversight that needs to happen uh, doesn't happen for sort of these institutional design reasons. You know, the, the, a lot of what has just been described is just endemic to the way congressional oversight works. It's not, it's not particular to the IC right. and to oversight of the IC. You've, 
almost never talk to somebody who works at an agency who says, you know, our overseers are amazing. <laughs> I mean, that's a sentence I've never heard, right? So, and so um, now some of them have more. Uh, you know, Homeland Security famously has, you know, whatever it is, 34 committees that oversee it, right? Which it has its own um, problems. But, but part of it is just, like the role of congressional oversight is inherently limited by the political economy of congressional oversight. The difference is, I mean, there's a few differences. One is clearances. I mean, there's a reason that these committees hire people who are coming out of the IC. It's because that way they start with clearances and knowledge. And because the subject matter is so hidden, if you don't hire people who have the expertise already, it's very hard for anybody to develop the expertise. So you have this inherent, you start off with people who have a, I wouldn't want to call it captured, but who are, you know, um, uh, in the academic literature on the path to capture, right? Um, and oversight, congressional oversight, has to play a bigger role with the IC than it has to play with any other part of um, the federal government because of the security issues. Mm -hmm. So we're asking congressional oversight to do something that it's incapable of doing even in a, a really open area, I don't know, you know, agriculture or whatever, right? It, 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 it's, it's incapable of doing it, and yet we're not only asking it to do it about the IC, we're asking it to do more. Just to follow up on that, because <clears throat> I think that there, I think it is a certain piece, uh, an aspect of this is capture. I would also think beyond the secret nature of intelligence, it's highly technical. So you've got limited staff, you've got principals who are torn in a lot of different directions. Intelligence is not their own responsibility. One could argue the incentive structure is not set up to make them want to delve deeply into technical and controversial issues. But I really, I think, want to introduce the concept of, of and the importance of emerging technology in this. Because one could argue you can understand, for example, a covert operation that involves um, operators. Can you understand how a satellite works? Do you have the people who can do that? Can they explain it to you? Do you have the time to understand it? I think technology is increasingly complicating the oversight picture. And, uh, you go first. and there's the matter of uh, re-election incentives. No one wins re-election because they're a great overseer of intelligence. Well, can you bring camera. that to your constituents? Right. Yeah. I mean, and it's, always, it's off camera. Mm -hmm. right. I mean, right, to the extent that oversee, oversight meetings are functional for um, election purposes, it's because they're conducted in public, but these aren't. Right. So uh, I just sort of want to weigh in on two things. One, I want to push back on the notion that Congress is incapable of, uh, maybe, I'm maybe I'm overstating your point, um, but I don't think Congress is incapable of oversight in this context. I think the, the church committee report and the investigation that took place there was highly technical, highly detailed. It was politically dangerous, right? It wasn't good for, right. for Senator Church. Um, but it was invaluable. The reports that came out were great. Um, uh, it changed the nature of the way that we looked at what was going on. It revealed great wrongdoing across a, a wide uh, spectrum. And I've, I, I hesitate to talk about this with a historian literally sitting immediately to my left. Uh, but, the, but the House and Senate Intelligence Committees actually seemed to do a good job in the 70s and 80s. And they sort of slid away from that. I think what we're seeing is an institutional design question. Congress itself has made itself dysfunctional, and this was a choice. It was a choice to decrease the number of staff. It was a choice uh, in how many committees that members sit on. It's a choice to allow leadership to appoint the members of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. These institutional design choices, combined with 
There was a hearing yesterday that I was at on bringing back the Office of Technology Assessment. So if you want to know how encryption works or how satellites work or any of these types of things, having a dedicated body of staff that work for you um, who can answer those questions is invaluable. But all of these things were cut off in the mid-90s, right? There was, there was the, the Gingrich cuts that, you know, well, decimation is killing off one in 10, so this is, I don't know what two in 10 would be, but uh, whatever, double decimation, right? It, it, it destroyed much of the capacity of Congress to do this type of work, but that is a policy choice, that is a design choice. I don't think it's because they're inherently incapable. I think that it's the result of a number of political decisions that uh, in retrospect, were unwise, but they don't have to be the final choice about what that decision has to be. Mm -hmm. so. so we talk about the intelligence community as a as a as a group, as a as one body, but um, but I think everybody in this room understands that the intelligence community is made up of um, different agencies, different offices within within agencies that aren't typically part of the intelligence community. Um, and one of, I think, the challenges is kind of coordinating roles across across the board. And I think um, the intelligence community is kind of um, a really good example of of that um, of that logistical challenge in terms of the executive branch. Um, so the Office of the Director of National Intelligence was created kind of to play that coordination role and and in a way to kind of oversee the actions of the entire intelligence community. So. In your, in your opinions, and this is a question to the, to the whole group, um, did the creation of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence change the effectiveness of oversight positively or negatively? Wow, that's a hard one. I mean, I think about it quite a bit. And I, I, you know, I talk to people, but I talk to people who, I know someone who used to work at ODNI, but I don't have a clear sense of that. Mm -hmm. um. Yeah, I mean, there's there's obviously pros and cons. I mean, it's it's like with everything you, you you put in structures, and they have the potential. I mean, I don't think you and I are disagreeing about Congress. Actually, mm. they have the potential to do to do things, and they have a drag on that potential that comes from whatever sort of situation they're in, right? Um, uh, ODNI has occasionally been great for oversight, and other times not so much, right? And so, like, which, like, how do you how do you sum that? I don't even know how to. I don't know. I don't know how to add that up. I think that this is a, no, no. Um, it's, it's an interesting question because the variation also is very dependent on the individual yes. who's in that position, and I think we really saw this with Dan Coates in his relationship when he stepped down, when we saw the acting DNI McGuire in the situation he got in, um, in this whole impeachment process that we're talking about now. And I think that it, measuring its effectiveness, it, me it means we need to go back to first principles and understand what it was intended to do, which was to streamline and integrate and provide a point of contact for advising the president and, um, and others on intelligence issues. Is it achieving that? Or is it one more layer of bureaucracy that is getting increasingly large? And I, I know people who, who also work there and say, well, it's, some think it's, it's a great vista, a great vantage point. Others think it's just one more, one more structure that's out there that's muddying the waters. But it's, a very, it's an interesting, open, hard question. I, I hear more often the, it's, a one, a, it's an additional layer of bureaucracy argument. Are, are, are there some specific ways in which ODNI has improved oversight of intelligence? Well, I mean, think, you know, even just calling it oversight is sort of an interesting question, right? Because call it, describing 
just at least internal oversight. Congress, not so much, right? So when Congress talks about oversight, they're talking about, are you doing the right thing? But for internal oversight, it tends to be, are you doing the legal thing, right? Internal oversight's aspirations tend to be much tamer than congressional aspirations. It, it, they tend to be a compliance frame rather than a, um, a policy, um, you know, is the game worth the candle kind of frame? Or maybe game worth the candle is not quite right, but is the, is, the, is the drag on civil liberties worth the gain, whatever the gain is, to security or to intelligence? Um, ODNI has definitely been, when it does internal oversight, and, uh, and I'm talking about the office as a whole rather than the director, I have right. to say, <clears throat> has been in compliance mode. I've written and believe that compliance mode is not, it, it's a useful mode, but it's not actually the mode we most need. Um, that that uh, compliance, you know, if the rules are set, to allow a pretty strong degree of, of, of intrusion on civil liberties or privacy, compliance with those rules should not satisfy us. And that there is insufficient attention paid by people who are in the know to think, but is that the right rule set? And I think that ODNI's um, uh, compliance mode has furthered the disinclination to think about um, surveillance from the perspective of are we doing the right thing as opposed to are we doing the legal thing? Mm -hmm. So that doesn't really answer your question, but I think that um, you can see it in the, the sort of what's been made public of the reports of the Civil Liberties Office at ODNI. It's very much a compliance mode, and I don't think that's terrifically helpful um, in terms of what we need out of that office. I wish it would do something a little different. Mm -hmm. Can I, can I just underscore that? Because I think that you, the distinction that you draw is a, is a very um, useful way of thinking about the, the, the is versus the ought. Uh, and actually, it brings in another entity in terms of oversight, which is, of course, the Office of Legal Counsel inside the Department of Justice. You know, just because you can make a plausible case that the law allows you to do something um, or that you will not run into legal difficulties for a decision that you make because no one will ever find out about it. Uh, or if they find out about it, there's nothing that they can do about it because they don't have standing. Or all of the legal ways that you can stop something from happening is a very different conversation from, well, what's the blowback if our allies find out that we did this thing to them? Or what's the consequence when, when people see that we're in, interfering in political systems? Like, like the, the, is this wise? is something that you would think that would be internally decided as well as being imposed upon them by Congress and through the political process. But my, the concern that I always have with entities that have mixed responsibilities of implementing whatever the political decision is um, as well as having this sort of foresight role is that the latter drops away. It's can we do the thing that's being asked of us or it, what's the maximum amount that we can do without getting into you know, when, if and when there are hearings, like, you know, we will emerge unscathed. Uh, I think that is a very different question from, is it actually wise to be doing this thing? And I don't think that that, that conversation happens maybe as much as it should. And, if, and when it does happen, um, it is subsumed by the, we can do this, not as much of whether we should do this. It, it also, for internal offices, if they can plausibly say, but that's illegal, that's kind of a, that's a very powerful move. Right. And 
if they instead say, that doesn't seem worthwhile, right? We think the privacy invasion of that is not worth the gain in intelligence. If they're seen to do that, they kind of lose juice in the agency. They, they gain authority in the agency to the extent there really are compliance offices. And so internal offices have kind of an incentive to stick with compliance and, and internal civil liberties offices in the intelligence community have an incentive to stick with compliance and stay away from really, which is um, a piece of is that wise, right? Um, and so some of the offices, many of the offices say, OK, that's what we're going to do. We're going to be about law. Um, and what that does is it deprives the IC of a voice that isn't about law, but is, in addition to being about law, about interests. And the, the privacy and civil liberties interests are real. And they need representation in the internal process. And they don't get it because the offices, and I think this is um, true of the ODNI offices, since that's where you asked mm -hmm. us, um, sort of have institutional reasons to not want to be seen to kind of going there. I mean, it would strike me as a, a real missed opportunity to not address those concerns, because I think when we see scandals coming out of the intelligence community, it's almost always related to those incursions, incursions on, um, on personal civil liberties. Uh, so you know, I, I, would, I would think that the intelligence community would have an incentive to begin addressing those earlier on in the process in a really serious and, and meaningful way. Um, can I, can I yeah, one? absolutely. So sort of in that context, in, and I'm sitting to the scholar who can talk about this better than I can, um, which seems to be the case today. Uh, so when you, when you look at like the, the emergence of the state secrets privilege, Right, you know, this this is this was in the context not of of uh, great questions of state, right? It's it's about liability from the widows of people who were killed in a plane crash, or we have, you know, this is may or may not be intelligence. It's certainly national security, like the the bases in Georgia that are leaking toxic chemicals that are killing their neighbors. You know, it's not always a question of you know, is it okay if I open up your email? It's can we dump all these pollutants into the stream and then give everybody who's living on the base, you know, brain cancer 10 years later? Um, or can we have planes that fall out of the sky because we're not doing our due diligence to make sure that it's, you know, so there, there's a whole spectrum of questions that, that when you put the, the cloak of secrecy over something and, we're, and, we're, and we put it over more and more things, um, is it about protecting something that needs to be protected, um, that really needs to be protected? Like that there's a compelling argument for it and there's somebody pushing back. Or is it about something that's just embarrassing? Or that if that is more than embarrassing, that creates liability and political disincentives for us, but it isn't something that has to do with our underlying mission. So like poisoning people outside Fort Benning doesn't have to do with the military mission. Mm -hmm. Um, but it is something that they want to sort of keep under wraps. Are you suggesting that the intelligence community keeps things secret that could be embarrassing? No, never. <laughs> Because that's against the rules. Um, nor, nor, that, nor do they advocate against legislation that would provide more right. transparency around uh, the types of things that they do. That's right. Um, so going back to congressional oversight and the role it plays in the, specifically in the intelligence community, um, I think everybody can recognize that we are moving in a much more hyper-partisan direction almost daily. Um, and I think the intelligence committees in Congress have typically been above the fray, um, typically, not, not, um, not uniformly, of course. Um, 
But I think, and not just starting with their role in the impeachment inquiry, although that's certainly not helping, um, I think we have started to see this hyperpartisanship uh, impact the work of the intelligence committees. And so um, I just wanted to pose the question to the group, what do you think the impact that is going to have or is having on oversight of the intelligence community? Well, <clears throat> I'll, I'll just start, but I wonder about the future, not just the present, but the future of the House Intelligence Committee having had this deep dive into the impeachment inquiry. I can only assume that Speaker Pelosi deciding that Representative Schiff, uh, chair of House Intelligence, uh, to take, for the, that committee to take on that role, this is a sign of her respect for Schiff's intelligence, competence, and all of that. But uh, certainly my sense of the House Committee versus the Senate, I uh, sort of made myself do some reading about what the committees have been up to recently. And I certainly get the sense of the Senate Committee functioning fairly well in this hyper-partisan period in which we find ourselves. And of course, the House Committee, not so much. And I, I think what, what could draw the House Committee, House Intelligence Committee, back into a more sort of bipartisan, cooperative functioning? I mean, I, I, I'm always interested how the, periodically I check to see how are the two committees, which are themselves, we should acknowledge, the, the committees are shrouded in a lot of secrecy. It's not just the okay. intelligence agency, but necessarily the, the committees are shrouded in secrecy. But how do they present themselves to the public? And so it's instructive to look at their websites. And uh, when you go to the website of the House Committee, you, you would barely know that there are Republicans. But all you can click on minority, and then you can then you go there, and it's it's Nunez, and then you would wouldn't know much anything about about Schiff, and in there, from Nunez, you can hear essentially conspiracy theories, and anyway, it's a bit of a mess. Well, yeah, with the Senate committee, you know, you, you, you see both sides, and you, you see more evidence of uh, constructive functioning and cooperation. That has to be, I think, a tribute to Senator Burr, the chair, the Republican, and the ranking, and the vice chair, Senator Warner, the Democrat. Uh, but how will we move? So I think there's a difference. It's, it, you know, there's an old idea going back to 1948 that Congress should have created a joint committee on intelligence. And then, much to my surprise, the so-called 9-11 Commission sort of publicized that idea, recommended that idea in the uh, early 21st century. But my friend Locke Johnson, who's a great scholar of congressional oversight of intelligence, I've, I've heard him say, you know, if, if you're going to fly a small plane and there's some dangers, better to have two engines rather than one. If one engine's not working, well, maybe, maybe the other will. And I think my sense of it is, one engine is working at least fairly well; the other is not. And I wonder how to get the other one. I, I just think you can't function very well if you're just utterly polarized. And I think, unfortunately, this impeachment role has made that problem more difficult. Yeah. Yeah, I would say um, that I, I tend to agree with you that, that the Senate has been operating um, 
more normally, I guess, than the House. Um, but I, you know, there have been um, reports that that Chairman Burr is considering subpoenaing the whistleblower that kicked kick this all off. And yeah, your face is exactly my face there, I think. And then, of course, there have been requests on the House side to do that as well. And I think it would just be such an incredible mistake, considering the role that whistleblowers play yes. in, in assisting Congress to do its oversight to do its oversight work. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, you know, as an organization that, that fights for the rights and protections of whistleblowers, it's, it's a scary time to see, to see this happening. They're already, intelligence community whistleblowers already have some of the weakest protections and hardest to enforce protections um, for whistleblowers in the federal government. So, so I am uh, holding my breath watching as things go over to the Senate, how, how, that'll, be, how that'll be handled. Yeah. So uh, a, a couple of things. Um, First, I, I wouldn't draw too much from the distinctions between the House and Senate committee websites, only in that all of the House committee websites have separate websites for the majority and the minority, right. whereas the Senate, all of the committee websites are a single website. Right. So you'll see that for all the committees. So, okay. so there are other things that, are, that I think support your thesis, but, but not, not necessarily that. Uh, I, I also think that the spectrum of bipartisan to hyperpartisan is the wrong spectrum to look at. I think that the House and Senate Intelligence Committees were failing long before impeachment and the Trump administration came. Um, uh, that their bipartisan consensualism was uh, largely in support of a lack of oversight and that was more captured by the perspective of the intelligence community. And that going back to what we had five years ago is also bad. The hyperpartisanship is bad, right? The, just using the, the powers and the tools to go and, and, and release, like that, that is not helpful in the least, and what we're seeing is, is very destructive. Uh, we put out a report two years ago with 26 organizations and a number of scholars of Congress that talked about changing congressional oversight of the intelligence community. It was everything from how you strengthen GAO and looking at, at staff, but part of it was also changing fundamentally the House and Senate intelligence committees. One is you need to do what the Brennan Center has recommended, and a number of, uh, of scholars have recommended, which is you need to go and see all the things that have happened since the last Church and Pike commissions. Like, you need to go and figure out what the bad, let's pick a year 2000 and say, from 2000 to present, where, where have the oversteps taken place, and have a separate entity that is not captured in the way that House and Senate intelligence communities have been captured, go in and conduct that investigation. That would require you know, more than 100 staff, like the prior entities did, it would require several years worth of work. But I think that would be valuable to figure out sort of what the state of play is. Mm -hmm. But you also need to think about the consequences of having leadership, the speaker and the minority leader, picking the members of the House Intelligence Committee. It's pernicious. Uh, you, uh, you need to think about, um, do they have enough staff? At 40-something staff, it's clearly not sufficient to be able to do their job, particularly when you look at the scope of the entities that they oversee. You need to look at how the clearance process works. Staffers wait years for clearances when they're in Congress. This is ridiculous. If Jared Kushner can get an interim clearance in a week, sorry, I don't mean to pick on him, but if you can get an interim clearance in the executive branch, you know, in a matter of days, and it takes more than a year for a congressional staffer to get a clearance, that doesn't make any type of sense whatsoever. Right. So there's a, there's a number of things. And taking all of the stuff and sticking it in a super secret committee when the purpose of the committee is to act as the avatar of the American people and to be responsive to Congress. There were communications from the Obama administration that were sent to Congress at the House Intelligence Committee stopping being sent to all the other members of the House, which they're not allowed to do. The House Intelligence Committee will go and chastise members for putting up 
placards on the floor that would republish things that were published in the newspaper because it contained classified material. I mean, if it's on the front page of the New York Times, then certainly you can discuss it on the House floor, but the House Intelligence Committee was threatening to file ethics complaints against members who did those types of things. What we have are a handful of folks who have taken upon themselves to be the arbiter of all this, and they've sort of closed uh, you know, the cloak around themselves, so you can't see what's going on. So members can't see it, so staff can't see it, so the public can't see it, and this is a fundamental problem. So I would suggest whether it's more bipartisan or whether it's more hyperpartisan, I think the nature of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees themselves is indicative of failure mm -hmm. and that we re need to rethink it from, from the ground up. Mm -hmm. I think you make a really interesting point about the, the long wait time for security clearances. And, um, and one idea that we've, um, that we've gone over and over is that there's precedent for, the, for Congress to take over the, um, the job of granting security clearance to congressional staff, um, done either through the House, um, sorry, through the Capitol Police or or, or another body, and I think that is something that the Congress really should consider because the fact that you're right, that you could get an interim security clearance if you're in the White House in a week and, and congressional staff are gonna have to wait years, and then that just incentivizes further pulling people from the intelligence community into the, into the oversight um, offices, which is not necessarily a bad idea, but you've gotta balance that out. Um, yeah. Why hasn't Congress done this? Is it, I mean, my suspicion, my, what, Again, I'm sort of historically oriented, but when I look back across whether it's recent decades, not to mention further ago, I see so much deference yeah. from the legislative branch to the executive branch. Is that the answer why? Why hasn't Congress done this? So th there's, a, there's a great letter. Question for the ages. There's a great letter from 1978 between the head of the, head of the CIA and Tip O'Neill where, um, where the CIA, I believe it's the CIA, says... There are too many people with clearances across government. We need to reduce them, so we need, we need to encourage you to reduce them as well. And Tip O'Neill's like, sure, as long as we get to keep them for leadership and the, and, and, and the CIA is fine. And then there's follow-up letters that say, well, we're massively increasing the number of, of people in the executive branch with clearances, and of course there's massive overclassification. Uh, Congress isn't gonna be happy about this. And they're like, well, as long as leadership gets their, you know, gets their people, it'll be totally fine. And like, Speaker Pelosi is a ex officio member of the House Intelligence right. Committee. So, you know, the, the, the people who think that they need the information, the speaker, the people that she handpicks, uh, the minority leader, the people that he handpicks, have access. They think that the rubes who are the members of Congress themselves simply aren't entitled. We're having a question around clearances. Why does Congress need, to, why do congressional staff need to get a clearance? Clearance is an executive branch function. Right. One Congress could simply pass a law and establish their own clearance rules. They did in the right. Atomic Energy Act. They could do it for all the other stuff. And putting aside that, uh, why would Congress want to go to these other folks to go and engage in this? I mean, there's, a re there's an answer, which is like the consensual process by which you obtain right. information. But from a first principles perspective, there's certainly no reason that they should need to do so. I, I mean, the, the, there's, a, there's a moment of fear in IC-related stuff Right? It's, it's the area in which, I mean, it's not the only area, but it's the area in which somebody can say to you, that will mean the end of the republic or, or some, like or that, some yeah. moderated version yeah. of that, right? And everybody who's been involved in um, <clears throat> oversight or civil liberties protection has a story to tell where that's, you know, I mean, 
where, where somebody said to them, I'll just do the one that, one that was me so that it's not so much hearsay, right? Where somebody said to me, um, that's a victory for our enemies. And, you know, I thought they were wrong. I thought this person was wrong. I thought that was insane. I think, um, just to reassure everybody, I think events bore me out. But, um, but the fact is that that requires, I mean, that's why Congress wants other people to do clearances, right? Because, because that way, if something bad happens, if there's another set of disclosures, if there's a leaker, if there's a whatever, if, if, if something bad happens, they can say, look, we didn't clear it. They cleared it. Those people who are the experts, they cleared this guy. And so you can't blame us for having given him the clearance. And that's also why um, there's, this, there's this implicit threat in terms of, of um, uh, disclosures. And the, the experts in the agency are actually better equipped to dismiss that threat than people who are less expert. How is the speaker supposed to know if something really is a threat? That would take a lot of attention, and she's got a lot of stuff going on, right? And so it's nice for her. I, I don't actually mean this about Pelosi, about Speaker Pelosi in particular. I don't, I, I'm not talking about a particular dispute. I just mean in general, Congress has every reason to want to get the, um, the say-so of the IC before they receive information, before they disseminate information, because then people can't criticize them if something bad happens. And then they don't have to figure out if it's all that likely that something bad will happen. I guess I would, I would just argue that while it may be the easier way out and the way out that means less consequences for them, it's not necessarily you know, them fulfilling their role as, as the legislative body. Oh, I didn't mean this as a defense. Yeah, no, 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 I do, right. But I think, and I think, but it's easy to hear that and go, yeah, you know, that makes a lot of sense. I wouldn't want that responsibility either, but I'm not a member of Congress, you know, so for a good reason. Uh, and so I guess I just, I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for that position, although I, I do understand kind of the human nature coming into it. Um, and that's mm -hmm. also like, it's, it's actually, the circumstance right now is the worst of all worlds for Congress. So I think they get, informed, so the Gang of Eight will get communicated about something in very cryptic forms. There was you know, the, the, the Rockefeller note um, that, that you can, you know, that the, he was the vice chair of the entire- I always forget if he was chair or vice chair, but so, you know, story. He, he was So he was informed of illegal behavior and he writes a note to file, handwritten note to file. I mean, it's ridiculous. He's the, he's the chair of the vice chair of the intelligence committee and he's sticking it in a file. So I have real problems with this, but I can't even consult with staff. I mean, of course you can consult Just with staff. Just do it. I mean, that's your job. So, so Congress gets the downside. Well, we told you that this was going on and you didn't stop it. And, there's, and what's the upside? There is no upside. The upside is that all these terrible things that are going on will continue to go on. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that uh, this, this, this game of theater of like, oh, well, we'll tell some of them, but we won't tell them all. We'll tell them a little bit and we'll, we'll leave a handwritten note in pencil that will come out 10 years later. And that's, I mean, that is, that is politically untenable. It makes Congress look stupid. Right. Uh, because they're deliberately choosing to be stupid, and that is that is dangerous for them as a body that rests upon the approval of the American people. Right. So I'm going to ask one more question, and then I'm, and then I'm going to go to the audience. Um, but and this may I may be putting you guys on the spot, and I apologize. But um, to move into the conversation about necessary reforms in this space, um, if you could 
like wave a magic wand and one, there would be one thing. So it doesn't have to be politically feasible in the moment, doesn't have to be um, maybe realistic to happen tomorrow. But if you could wave a magic wand and have one change occur in any particular oversight office or entity of the, in, of the intelligence community, um, what would it be? What do you think would have the most impact? I've got two. Go for it. Uh, one, uh, I, these are going to be super wonky, but they're possible. One of them is that every member of Congress should have one staffer who is cleared at the TSSCI level uh, because of the games that the briefers play where they classify information beyond where congressional offices can ask that. And there are members that have introduced legislation to do exactly this for another for a couple of years. The other would be I would change HIPSI from being a select committee to being a standing committee so that the members are chosen through the political processes in the parties and not chosen by the speaker or the minority leader so that they'd be more broadly representative to their caucus and not simply beholden to the person who put them on the committee. Um, I'd like to contribute also on the staff side. Increase the expertise of the staff, increase the sizes of the staff. That is a serious weakness right there, that they don't have recourse and support they need the clearances, but they need wide expertise. We're getting, I, get, I keep kind of harping on this technological piece, but so much of this work is headed in that direction that we really need to broaden that body, broaden the capacity there to support the principles. I understand there was an ideal very much alive back in the 70s, 80s, that those who were appointed to the two uh, congressional intelligence committees that those members should be people who, who have really good reputations within their respective body for sort of seriousness of purpose and are willing to spend the time and a willingness to be nonpartisan, bipartisan. Uh, how to sort of revive that ideal, what I, sort of relative to what you were saying. One of the ideas I read about, different from yours, uh, specific to the House side was to have the uh, speaker and the uh, minority leader agree that each should agree to who's chosen to be. So in choosing the chair of House Intelligence, both the speaker and the minority leader should agree on that person. And then the speaker and the minority leader should agree on who should be the vice chair of the committee. Uh, Seems to me that would be a start. Uh, it's, it's too idealistic, I know. But this notion that people on these two committees would be serious about intelligence oversight. I mean, we, I think everyone in this room knows it, but there is that big audience out there on uh, C-SPAN 2. So I just want to make a sort of elementary point that, I mean, I think this matters, what intelligence agencies do is critically important, but we know from history that sometimes there has been incompetence, sometimes there has been illegalities, and Congress and these committees especially can, can make a difference, and sometimes they have. Um, so I'll, I'll just take my role as focusing on the internal offices, not because I necessarily think that those are the most important. I actually don't think those are the most important, but since that's what I'm doing on this panel. Um, and I think in each element of the IC, I would redesign the internal um, civil liberties office to increase its um, sort of uh, hierarchical stature, to increase its access, and to safeguard its um, 
kind of uh, role in policy development and its connection to external advocacy communities um, to try to bring civil liberties perspectives into the agency development process. Along those lines, can I just add one more Absolutely. thing that we haven't touched upon, which is statutory inspectors general. Mm -hmm. Because I think we look at that as a, as a boundary spanning <clears throat> Uh, institution yeah. that kind of covers some of this. Yes. It is dual-hatted, so you have reporting inside and external. So I would argue that, and that has a politicized background as well, um, in terms of, for example, one agency inspected, or, you know, investigated its own right. statutory inspector general. So strengthening that role, reinforcing the importance of a boundary spanner, of someone who can be in both worlds, I think would be another thing that I would, I, would, I would strengthen. I would use that to complement the rest of the things we've been talking about because I think that role is crucially important. Mm -hmm. And if I could push you a little bit on that, um, when you say strengthen those inspectors general, do you have specific recommendations? I would, I'm now just crowdsourcing my work, so thank you. <laughs> I think the question there when you're talking about the efficacy of that role is autonomy. Mm -hmm. So that role has to be protected. And I don't know exactly how you would do that. You would probably do that through some type of rule mm -hmm. structure internally, mm -hmm. obviously statutorily. Um, but I think it's developing culture and norms around that role to keep it relatively sacrosanct. Yeah. So I don't have a concrete, write this rule, build this in, and this is how it will be effective. But I think the autonomy piece mm -hmm. there, what happens to this individual when they complain internally? And that is the crucial piece because right. it can be seen as effective and boundary spanning. I keep using that word, but I mean to try and break down what we've been talking about, which is this difference between internal and external. Um, but it can also be seen as a disloyal yeah. person within a pretty straightforward, I work, I work for the Army, chain of command. Yeah. So are you loyal internally or externally? Well, that person needs to be kept, it's an office, but kept safe. Yeah. One, I, one idea that we've been pushing for, for a little while is to give all inspectors general for cause removal protection. Um, because I think we even saw with the um, ICIG recently that uh, after after um, sending up there his letter to, to the Congress, the president was mulling, firing him. And there really isn't anything you can do to stop stop the president from doing that. He serves at the pleasure of the president and doesn't, doesn't benefit from for-cause um, removal protections like some other oversight offices do. We also see keeping that position acting, yeah. keeping it vacant. Oh, absolutely. These types of, of ways of weakening that role. Yeah. So I'm not a specialist in inspectors general, but my sense of it is and I know some of this history, like inspectors generals have done some great reports across the decades, some really gutsy reports across the decades. Have there been some horrible failures by inspectors general for intelligence agency? Because I'm mainly familiar with some really gutsy reports. I would say maybe one of the biggest failures would be um, uh, not not properly protecting whistleblowers. Um, and so I think there, you know, even just earlier in this administration, the person that the president chose to nominate for the CIA inspector general position, which had been vacant, um, was had open whistleblower um, retaliation complaints against them. Um, luckily, reporting, um, we reported that, and that um, I think factored into the Senate not advancing that nomination, and he later withdrew. But I think it, it goes to show that there are, you know, that. There are a lot of responsibilities that these these individuals hold, and I think and you mentioned earlier, kind of having strong leadership is really critical. Um, I think it's it's that's that's a one example. There there have been some um, some failures to engage um, by inspectors general. 
I mean, there's, there have been some, some situations where, you know, the inspector general is known to have known about some problem and didn't take it on, right? So that's not as public as a gutsy report. It's, right. a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dog not barking. Um, right. uh, and I, I don't know of any in the IC, which doesn't mean there aren't any. I have no idea. But there are definitely some inspectors, some inspector general reports that you read in some agencies where you read it and you're like, uh, that's just not right. Um, uh, so that does, I mean, you know, that makes sense, right? It's, a, it's another office. It's an office with a staff that has to become quite expert in quite contentious topics very fast. And so you would expect there to be some mistakes in that right. stuff. And definitely inspectors general make mistakes sometimes. Okay, I went too in deep on the IG, uh, on the inspector general point because I'm from the Project on Government Oversight. So now we are going to the, uh, to the audience for questions. And um, please wait to be called on. Uh, wait for the microphone so everyone in the room and the online audience can hear. And um, at the start, please announce your name and affiliation. Thank you. Um, my name is... <clears throat> My name is Stephen Keat. Uh, I'm a retired Foreign Service officer. Uh, while I was serving, uh, I did two tours in the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research, one at the time of the first Gulf War when I was secretary, I was associate editor of Secretary Baker's Morning Intelligence Summary, and then at the end of my career, <clears throat> I was working dealing with the caucuses. And um, I appreciated very much your comments. There are two areas where I had some observations. I'd be interested in hearing what you have to say on them. You were speaking about the role of the DNI. And I think if you look at small intelligence agencies like the Bureau of Intelligence and Research, it's uh, a double-edged sword. The good aspect is that people working for the small agencies get to do details at DNI. They now are far more involved in the process of preparing the president's daily briefing than in the past. I, the bad part of it is that they're now more caught up in a larger institution and um, there's perhaps less opportunity for the sort of dissent that there was in the past. And I particularly think of dissent in terms of the famous footnote for the second Gulf War. Right, so that would be my observation on that. I'd be interested in seeing what you have to say on it. Uh, your comments on congressional oversight. Um, first, um, having worked in one of the smallest intelligence agencies, I would disagree with you about focusing on the number of people with clearances. Uh, I would argue that it's more important the quality of the oversight process. And I know, I'm thinking in particular of one time when I was working on the caucuses and I went up to the hill and I was speaking with some people about the countries <laughs> I was covering and I was very impressed with the knowledge that they had and I was very impressed with the quality of their questions. Uh, and then when we're going and talking about the quality of the oversight, Something important to keep in mind is that often the members themselves are in agreement with the administration of the day's positions. Okay, and I'm thinking again with the lead up to the second Gulf War, and they're often very much in agreement with the policies of that administration and with the practices. And I'm thinking now of the torture tactics of the CIA, which are things that I think were horrible but which I would argue that on a bipartisan basis had a lot of support. Uh, 
So again, thank you for um, your presentations, and I'd be interested in your comments on my observations. I'm glad, I'm gra it's gratifying to hear that you were hearing good questions from members, uh, because I was a little shocked or deflated to hear, again, from a couple of legislative liaisons that they were not impressed by the, but I don't, I don't sort of, I, I'm glad to hear what you say. It's gratifying to hear that there were good questions coming from members. Yeah, so I can, I want to address the second one. So uh, on the first point, like I think it very much varies who you get and on uh, what time and what constant, you know, so there are many smart staffers who work very, very hard and very long hours. There's just not enough of them uh, to be able to cover the, the, the field. Um, on the second point, I think the composition of the intelligence committees, to the extent that it reflects leadership prerogatives, means that you will lack the level of dissent necessary to push back on things that may be questionable, like torture, where there may be factions within the Democratic caucus or the Republican conference who would disagree with those behaviors. But because that information is kept so narrowly cabined to people who are closely controlled by leadership, that there isn't an opportunity to, to push back. And I, and I think that if we're going to treat congressional oversight seriously, we need to talk about it in terms of Congress, in terms of each chamber, in terms of all the members of the chamber being able to engage, and not what we're doing now, which is making it very, very narrow, uh, reporting to the Gang of Eight, uh, you know, keeping information very close in certain respects, uh, beyond the point that's necessary, so that had what was going on been better ventilated within the House and the Senate, you wouldn't have had, uh, I remember members uh, saying we were never told, um, senior members saying we were never told. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. No way to know from where I sit. Um, but if more members knew, it would have been harder for it to be, um, uh, for it to have continued in the way that it did. And I think that's true for a lot of activities. And I think we have time for one, maybe two more questions. Hi there, thank you all for being here today. Shannon Vavra from CyberScoop. I wanted to ask Ms. Lester and everyone else on the panel about current oversight of the National Security Agency from that technological perspective, but less about perhaps domestic surveillance and more about surveillance abroad. And is there the techno technical expertise now and what can we do to develop technical expertise in these oversight bodies in terms of exploitation abroad and lacing malware abroad to conduct that kind of surveillance? I'm curious if you can opine on that front. Thank I'm you. actually not an expert. You probably are more of an expert on NSA than I am. I'm more of a CIA person. Um, I, I mean, my, my impression, but I, I, I wouldn't want to, I'll just share an impression, is that 12333 oversight is um, not very robust. I guess that's right. So, I mean, We've been talking about problems with oversight in, in areas that are massively more covered um, than, so everything that you just heard, that's about other stuff. And then say there's a tenth, a hundredth of that amount of oversight going on for 12333 surveillance. That's my impression. But I don't really know that. I, that's, that's an impression. Yeah, I would just add very briefly, and this, this applies for science and technology policy uh, and, 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 and like oversight broadly for Congress, is that Congress has destroyed its capacity to do that type of work. 
uh, in that in the past that had support offices and agencies that could support that type of thing. There is a hearing that took place yesterday on bringing back the Office of Technology Assessment or Enhancing Congress of Science and Technology Policy. Generally, I think that there is an understanding on the Hill that they are woefully deficient across the entire spectrum of questions uh, and that there is an effort to uh, at least push back on that and try to reestablish the capacity that they had lost. We've got a minute and 45 seconds. Does anybody have a very quick question? Hi, good morning. Thank you all for being here. Martin Moulton, DC Libertarian Party. What would you all say to pretty much staunch libertarians who would just abolish the entire AIC simply because of all the illegal wars, the illegal surveillance, the illegal assassinations of people from John Lennon to MLK to Fred Hampton, who we noted earlier this week, and the unaccountability and non-transparency to the public about how our earnings are being spent. I would argue that increased oversight um, may help you get there. Oh, so why is everyone looking at me? <laughs> no, I, I don't think that you can abolish it, but I think that you can break it up. I think that you can take away major portions of its mission. I think that you can embody uh, significant oversight. I think that it is what we have seen, like you identified, uh, including ongoing surveillance of war protesters and uh, uh, efforts to undermine our domestic political system is an ongoing threat to the security and nature of our democracy that it is terrifying and that we should be afraid of those things. And we need to think about what is happening uh, and to engage in systematic oversight and uh, reconstruction of these efforts so that uh, it is not dangerous to the body politic. But I don't think that you will ever be able to get rid of those functions because they are, ne they are necessary uh, to sustain America as a concept. All right, and with that, we conclude our first panel. Um, I wanted to thank all the panelists and Cato for putting this on. Um, and uh, do you want me to make these announcements? Do you want to make them? Go ahead. Okay, uh, so we're going to now take a 15-minute break. Uh, refreshments are available uh, in the Winter Garden. It's located on the first floor. Restrooms are located on this level to the left of the elevators and on the lower level. Turn left when you reach the bottom of the stairs, and the restrooms will be <laughs> down the hallway to your right. All right. Again, join us in 15 minutes for our second great panel. Thank you.